This week on Semi-Intellectual Musings, on the heels of a few guest appearances, our creative juices get to flowing. I, Joppa, What Do You Hate More on Phil that I've been saving, and announce our new upcoming podcast series, Chronicity in Podcasting. This is Resilience, Rebounds, and Blocks. Woman, woman, tell me your name, let me Hey, man. Hey, how's it going, buddy? Pretty good. Uh, welcome, everyone. This is Semi-Intellectual Musings, the podcast that looks at social sciences, humanities, and arts. We do so by looking at books, uh, movies, sport, uh, film, uh, all that kind of stuff. And uh, I, I have a feeling that we're now a bi-weekly podcast. Is that possible? Maybe. Maybe. We'll see. We, uh, we have an announcement a little bit later on, so... Um... For now, uh, yeah, I think we'll go bi-weekly, okay. just weather permitting. Weather permitting. <laughs> yeah, so hey buddy, how uh, has your week been going, man? My week's, uh, it's been going okay. You know, um, so last week I did uh, a talk at Carleton University, I think, uh, well you and I have talked about it. Um, yeah, we talked about your talk. Yeah, <laughs> Talked about the talk. Uh, yeah. It was entitled Storytelling and Conversation as Pedagogy. And really what I said was you should start a podcast and use that to teach at university, uh, more or less. Oh, really? So you turned <laughs> it into a promotion for our own show? Eh? <laughs> well, I dropped that we had, uh, you know, when you're in this room and, you know, the university can sometimes get a little stuffy, right? So I, I try to make it um, comfortable. So I had some lounge music going. After all, we were in the lounge. Uh, professor who put it together had some great food. So that, you know, lighten the atmosphere. That's and, nice. uh, you know, I think it was maybe the second point out of my mouth was, well, I have a podcast. So, <laughs> yeah, shamelessly plugging away, you know, <laughs> you, you got to grind, man. You got to do the grind. <laughs> we need to get some, uh, we need to get some business cards. I've, uh, like, it comes up in like conversation when you're going around like, oh, oh I want to say I got a podcast, but uh, it's tough to to get people to pull out their phone and hit subscribe. So. I'm sure That's you did the, the legwork there. Um, so another way that we've been getting out on other podcasts, um, we went on the Brainstorm podcast yes, with Corey absolutely. Johnston. Yeah. Is that right? Yeah. That is, that is right, man. That was a fun night. That uh, was, yeah. It yeah. was a packed house, eh? It was, there was like eight people in that room, I think. <laughs> you know, our, it, so we're all Canadians. So um, Corey Johnston... Uh, runs a podcast out of Saskatchewan. And so I think there are seven over on their side. And then you and I, man, a bunch of Canadians in a room. And when you have that many people, you have to talk over each other. But our Canadian sensibilities, I think got the best of us anyway. I don't know about them, but I could not get two words in without interrupting someone. And I felt so bad. <laughs> we almost got into a uh, a sorry fight on that show as well, which was great. I think we, we did, yeah. Yeah, there was a round where everyone said sorry, and we went around saying sorry, sorry, sorry. And then, yeah, it was great. And then what else? Like, we talked about particle physics. We talked about the CERN particle uh, accelerator. Um, <sighs> Man, we talked and, about so many things. And, like, the, the marketing of the, the, like, semiotics behind the God particle. Like, it, yeah, it was yeah. really rangy. And then, oh, uh, yeah, it was. 
And we talked about both of our researches a bit, like, you know, Captain Concussion gets the concussion talk in there. Um, blew their minds because they're all from Saskatchewan. I'm like, oh, might as well talk about my concussions. But then, because Phil was trying to struggle to get a word in edgewise, I was like, so Phil, uh, what do you research? <laughs> like, threw it over to you. So, um, yeah, we got to talk about your stuff a little bit too, right? Yeah, it was actually uh, a lot of fun to sit down and it's been a while since I've spoken about my research. So, um, you know, captive audience, uh, you know, being able to articulate it in that way was um, a lot of fun. Um, and I think they enjoyed it. They, they definitely had some interesting questions for us. Yeah, and that's why it's kind of interesting to talk about your research to different audiences rather than just me over here who's like, oh, yeah, that's a smart point, Phil, and just, like, talk about Foucault for 20 minutes. Like, right, it's right. nice to get different audience because they fire you kind of curveball-y things that get you thinking about your stuff in new ways. Yeah, yeah. So if anybody wants to check out that episode, it will be posted uh, shortly on Brainstorm Podcast. You can find them on Twitter at Brainstorm Pod, and you can find Corey at Hardcore Skeptic. Uh, he's over there on Twitter. Uh, lots of really cool uh, Twitter engagement from Corey. Um, but the thing that I retained coming out of that podcast was that we on our show should do a whole episode devoted to resilience. It was a topic that came up. We talked about it. It's like uh, it's been my life for the past nine years, I guess. So why not? Let's just do a whole episode on it. It's in, it's interesting, man. Like ever since that conversation, I've seen either the actual word resilience pop up in and around, like in the news, in my like daily observations. Um, also, you see a lot of narratives around risk and and sort of implications around vulnerability. So, I I've been thinking a lot about it since we've talked to those guys, to Corey Johnson and friends. Um, oh, and by the way, before we go on, sorry about my terrible internet connection that night. I was trying something new and it <laughs> did not work out well. So if, uh, yeah. if they want me to come on again in the future, I'm happy to, happy to rejoin them. But, uh, yeah, so it's, um, it's interesting. We decided to do a little bit of an episode about this and then your talk there, um, did it touch on resilience as well with pedagogy? Is that well, yeah. So you're trying to make the two things, yeah. How I'm going to make the connection is, um, I'm going to say that we can only understand the concept of resilience if we give it a story. So I'm going to link storytelling uh, to the concept of resilience um, by way of things like metaphors and analogies. So that's what I'm going to try to set up for us today. But Matt, before we get into that, uh, did you have announcements? Yeah. So um, actually kind of a major announcement. Um, so, okay, long and short of it, we're going to start a series on our podcast. I'll, I'll speak correctly this time. Um, it'll be within the same feed, but it'll just be titled differently. And we're going to have to come up with a title, but it's basically going to be about chronic pain, illness, or disability, um, and the dimensions of, of that. Um, over the last, I don't know, I'd say a few months now, I've been encountering other podcasters who podcast in pain, or podcasts with uh, some sort of chronic illness that either impedes their ability to podcast or actually is the reason why they started a podcast in the first place, kind of like myself. Um, so what I want to do is uh, is start uh, a mini-series within our, our own feed that will be ongoing, um, and f I'll probably be doing the bulk of the 
interviews just because Phil's really busy at school and he's going to be doing the bulk of the editing. So uh, a little bit of uh, dividing the labor there. But if you do want either Phil to interview you or the both of us, just let us know. Um, so if you are interested and you're a podcaster who podcasts in chronic pain with an illness, a disability, uh, mental health has come up a lot as well. Um, we'd love to talk to you. So you can email us at semi-intellectual at gmail.com and I'll send a link back to you with uh, a link to a scheduling uh, software so that we can book you in. So so now's your chance if you want to come on semi-intellectual musings. Uh, I think one thing, my contribution to those discussions, I think will be to uh, kind of untangle chronic pain versus chronic illness versus disability uh, and where mental health uh, kind of fits in that whole thing. Uh, I don't think we need, I don't think we can lump it all together. So um, regardless of what uh, you're experiencing, we'd like to hear from you. Yeah. And Give I us think a shout. I think that's a really good point though, Phil. I'll uh, tack that on because a lot of the responses we've seen through Facebook um, have been like, oh, I don't know if I really fit into this. So um, it's however you self-identify. Um, and I'll just also mention, because some people have asked what we'll actually be talking about. Um, so this is kind of like what I studied at school, but I'll try to keep it simple. I, I'm interested in uh, the dynamics between chronic and acute symptoms. So having a chronic, let's say, chronic illness, and then you have these acute symptoms that pop up. I'm also interested in the process of acquiring a diagnosis or not being able to get diagnosed with anything. Um, how it affects your relationships, maybe, um, how it drew you into podcasting, and any tips and strategies, and hopefully words of encouragement that you might be able to give to other people. Um, these conversations are going to be open-ended um, and personalized. So whatever directions you decide to go in in the conversation, I'll just follow your lead. And uh, we kind of talk about whatever you want to talk about. So uh, we've already got uh, a little bit, uh, pretty good response, actually, which I'm really encouraged by. And uh, this is something that I'm personally passionate about, and I know you are as well, Phil. So I think we're both pretty excited about this little yep, project. Yeah, this is going to be fun. This is our yeah. 2018 uh, kind of side project within a side project. Absolutely. Uh, Super meta, yeah. man. Or micro. Yeah. I don't know. Micro, micro. Yeah, yeah, the other way. Very micro. <laughs> uh, Matt, I'm going to kick it over to you. You know, as we always, as we try to do on this show, I'm not going to, I'm, I'm going to stop using the word always on this show, okay? As we <laughs> often do. Uh, we play a game in the intro. Uh, and now, it used to be friend or foe, but a certain podcast from Waco, Texas, decided to steal it, and we've since stopped using it as a game. So you can thank them. Yeah, uh, you can cast it to the curb like an old yeah. piece of trash. Yep. You Jacob, know, that, Waco. It's not, it's not a very fun game anyway. You know what? Yeah, whatever. We, we have better games. Whatever. Yeah, totally. You know? So the game that we've been playing lately is What Do You Hate More? So that's uh, you pick two things. And out of those two things, which ones do you hate more? Our last episode, uh, we did two good things, things that people would generally find beneficial. And we debated which one we hated more. So Matt, out of two things, what are they today? This is a complete surprise. I have no idea what you've picked for us. Okay, so when it kind of came up with this game, two days later, I came up with this topic for us. So I've been holding back for uh, oh, quite right. a long time, Phil. So I'm really excited to get All right, uh, well, uh, your lay hatred it on, on here. Lay it on me. Okay, Phil. What do you hate more? Being way too drunk or being really hungover? Mm. Which <laughs> one do I hate more? Oh, boy. 
Okay, so between being way too drunk versus being, like, way too hungover? Yeah, yeah, basically. The extremes of both. Wicked hangover or being, like, stumble around, room spinning, like, about to throw up. <laughs> like, that kind of drunk. Oh, wow. Those are two really shitty things. For me, <laughs> I anyway. Would, I thought you would hate this. <laughs> oh, man. You know, I'm going to have to say the hungover one. And my my reasoning is the symptoms are probably close to being the same. You know, head spinning, nauseated, uh, not really having a good time. But uh, the hungover one has the added layer of guilt. Uh, so, you know, why did I do that last night? Why did I do this to myself? I shouldn't have done this. I, I, I know that this is going to happen. Being the too drunk, you're not there yet. You don't really have the guilt, you know? You're 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 kinda eyeballing the next drink and you're like, Could I do it? Do you think I could jam another one inside of this body that's about to shut down? So, so I think I think for me, I hate being hung over more than I do being too drunk. So we we're learning something here about Philly. Uh recurring theme on this segment that we've uh, pulled out is uh, <laughs> yes, the yeah, sense yeah. of guilt. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah, yeah no, I'm I'm going to go with, um, you know what? I'm going to, I'm going to disagree. I, I think I hate being hammered, um, more like really sloppy drunk because like the feeling of not being in control, the right. feeling of like being somewhat aware of how much of an ass you're making out of yourself and you're kind of making a scene, bumping into people. Um, you know, somebody has to like take care of you a little bit, like, so it's a little bit of guilt as well, but it's also that feeling of uncontrolled but slight awareness while it's going on. Mm, yep. Yeah. Yeah. Um, um, great hangover uh, prevention tip that a uh, buddy of mine from back home gave me. Obviously drink, like, you know, water throughout the evening if you can remember. It never really happens. But before you go to sleep, drink, like, a big thing of water and a multivitamin. And for whatever reason, it uh, really helps the next day. So Matt, there's a little uh, recommendation. <laughs> that, that's not a bad tip. That's not a bad tip. Uh, I'm, I have a little bit of a confession to make on this one. The last time that I was uh, not in control, that I've you know consumed enough alcoholic beverage, uh, was actually with you. Uh, and that would nice. have been February of 2017. So it's almost been a year. And it was when we got together to play pool to announce that we're starting this podcast. I remember barely that night. <laughs> yeah, well, there you go. Uh, yeah, that was that because around that time I was also in the PhD crunch and I made the decision that I cannot uh, work and drink. So, um, you know, my drinking has been limited to, a, you know, basically a single bottle, maybe once a week. Uh, sometimes I go two weeks without having anything. Um, we obviously shared some cans over the summer on the patio for our patio sessions uh, but I would never actually finish like a whole can. I don't know if you noticed, but uh, yeah, totally. You leave like a quarter at the bottom. Yeah, yeah, or cigarettes like cigarettes in there. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Sometimes I would open a small can and not even finish it. So, yeah, uh, haven't been doing a lot of drinking. That's good, man. That's awesome. So uh, we, you hate uh, being hungover, and I hate uh, the sense of being out of control when I'm too drunk. There you go. And together go. we are probably not very good party people. Don't invite us to your party. Yeah, no kidding. We'll just pontificate in the corner by ourselves. <laughs> well, speaking of pontificating, Matt, uh, one who does so, so well, uh, but not about things of this world, a pontificator of the 
otherworldly of the sightings of the third or second or first kind. Uh, I want to play a promo for you, or, you know, we want to play a promo for you. Uh, his Twitter handle right now, Robert Panic, not related to Chris Christofferson, and he is the creator, writer, host of the amazing podcast, Our Strange Skies. Here's his news promo. What's up, UFOnauts? It's your UFO guy, Rob Christofferson. Have you ever been curious about the UFO phenomenon, but unsure of where to start? Have you ever wondered about just what crashed at Roswell? Have you ever wanted common sense advice about licking UFOs? The answers don't. Then check out the Our Strange Skies podcast, where we dive into America's rich UFO history and uncover what these sightings say about ourselves. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, and most podcast apps, as well as Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Don't forget to look up, because you never know what you'll find in Our Strange Skies. In Grey We Trust. Thanks, Rob. That's uh, uh, Our Strange Skies. I am actually an avid listener of uh, your show. I think it's great. The production quality is really high, and I really appreciate your rational skepticism, let's just call it, um, but also hearing about all these wacky stories. So um, be sure to download his uh, podcast, Our Strange Guys. And you can follow Rob at your, that's Y-E-R-U-F-O guy uh, on Twitter. And you can find the show on Twitter at Our Strange Skies. Uh, I believe he's everywhere now. iTunes, uh, you know, all the good places to listen to podcasts these days, wherever the kids go. Uh, and one thing that I find hilarious is, uh, so Rob does this thing, as you said, he's like a kind of a skeptical believer, I'm going to say. Um, but, uh, he does this thing where he kind of like pokes fun at like the ultra believers, like the people who think that they've had this encounter and it's like extraordinary kind of like pokes fun at them a little bit. And I respect that. I respect that. They call them, um, he calls them, um, experiencers. Yeah, on uh, the podcast, which I think is a really funny word that I've never heard before. <laughs> like, uh, don't take yourself so seriously. Yeah, exactly. You know, like, um, there's better things to do in this world. <laughs> uh, okay, well, speaking of better things to do in this world, Matt, today we have some great music from a Toronto, Ontario, Canada-based duo. They go by the title, by the name Banjay. Uh, they are the creation of Alana and Ian. Um we're going to kick you off with a start the the first track off of their album, their newest album, Ingenue. You can find them on Facebook at Banjay Music. You can find them on Twitter at Banjay Music. They're on Bandcamp, Banjay Music. They're everywhere. They have a, U, a YouTube channel. Just check them out. And uh, we're going to play several of their songs today. This one is entitled Ingenue. <laughs> Sure, the new folks, but I should know it's all 
Welcome back, everyone. This is Semi-Intellectual Musings. I am your co-host, Philip Primo. And I'm Matt Sanderson. Today, we are talking resilience. We're talking storytelling. And uh, we're going to try to combine those two. We're going to call it uh, the story of resilience. How about that, Matt? <laughs> okay. Well, we'll, uh, we'll work on that little narrative there in terms of the title. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Okay. Uh, so when I say the word resilience, what's the first thing that comes to your mind, Matt? Um, uh, I think of strength and the ability to withstand, uh, danger or harm, I would just say. So as like a protective factor almost. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. And do you remember where you heard it for the first time? Um, yeah, actually, honestly, it uh, comes up a lot in medical anthropology, uh, when it comes to, um, acquiring diagnoses, not getting them as well. Um, how doctors view patients, and how patients uh, view themselves. Like, do you, you, as somebody who has an illness or a disability, see yourself as resilient, or do you see yourself as vulnerable, or are you at risk? So that's how it kind of comes up in medical anthropology. And then, of course, you see it in our everyday world. It's like a pretty common word, I think. And if it's not the actual term resilience itself, you see sort of some of the meanings behind the term resilience uh, in our everyday world. Yeah, it has become somewhat of a buzzword, uh, something that we see in common uh, pop media, pop culture, uh, and then also like in government rhetoric and government speak as well, right? So we have to be resilient when uh, faced with catastrophe. We have to fight the terrorism with resilience, Matt. Um, Etymologically, the term resilient stems from several post-classical Latin roots, the most prominent being that of resilientia, which is closely associated with avoidance. And that can be identified in texts as early as 1540. Later in its emergence, this root became associated with the action of rebounding. And some authors have traced the term to resilio, and that's the Latin root of the French verb associated with resiliere. So there's that. And then, uh, Matt, would you be surprised to know that Francis Bacon has his little say in this uh, resilience game? No, I wouldn't be surprised at all. I actually have a collection of his essays. It's one of my favorite books of all time. So (laughs) go on. I actually know a bit about Francis Bacon. Well, there we go. So in uh, 1625, Bacon published his writings on natural history in uh, the book Silva Silvarium. Silvarium? I'll take your word for it, buddy. Do you know this one? Yeah. Uh, So... Um, you know, it's a seminal text, uh, by Bacon, uh, it, and it also is considered to be the first scientific use of the word resilience. So Bacon used the concept to translate his observation on echoes, and he leaned on the terms imagery of bouncing or rebounding. So basically what Bacon was doing in that entry was describing how sound bounces off walls in something like a cave. And the best kind of metaphor analogy he could come up with was that the sound was resilient. It had a resilient characteristic to it. And since then, that bouncing or rebounding or the ability to be uh, 
shifted in shape uh, has stuck with the term, which is, you know, kind of neat if you think about that. Um, now, Thomas Blount, probably don't know the name, but a few years earlier in his dictionary Glossographia, uh, had the term uh, in it as well, but it had a double meaning. So it went to rebound on the one hand, but to go back on one's word. So you could be resilient, and that meant to kind of take back your word. Oh, so weird. yeah, so it that was more associated sense. with the discursive act of taking back what you've said. That's kind of like the really old history of the term. But I don't know. Thought maybe you'd enjoy that. Oh yeah, totally. I love. Uh, I love the. What is it called again? Epitomology. Etymology. <laughs> yeah. Etymology. There you go. Um, I I like um, bacon with the the echoes, and then um, it's kind of interesting. Like that's not how I think of resilience. I think of resilience like today's you know uh, parlance as like almost with your head down, heading towards um, danger or risk. And then right. things sort of bouncing off of you. And that's what makes you resilient, almost like um, body armor or something like that. Um, so it's kind of interesting how these words and the meanings behind it, the semiotic meanings behind it, shift through time, right? Yeah. And the yeah. discursive act, like taking your word back, that doesn't make any sense. Like I don't, I don't see that at all in the concept. But maybe that does come up in the, in the narrative and storytelling component. Who knows? Well, I think like I think this is what's interesting with this concept and for many other words is that the meaning, as you said, kind of gets shaped by its use and by its time. And, you know, language is always in motion. Language isn't static. So language gets um, taken up and used and changed uh, if it has an application. Right. Uh, so we use a word because it makes sense to us and we can understand it. Um, what I find really interesting about resilience is that it kind of has many different definitions. So we can say it's linked to risk, uh, but what does that actually mean? And so that's something that I kind of want to pick up on uh, a bit uh, in this episode. Well, yeah, for sure. Cause like, as you said, like heard right off the top, like coming from medical anthropology, there's many different ways resilience is used. And then, as I said, like if a doctor is using the concept versus how a patient uses it about themselves, like that completely changes the meaning. Um, and then sometimes it doesn't change the meaning. Sometimes the meanings coincide. So yeah, for sure. So let's get into it, Phil. Uh, yeah. Speaking of medical anthropology, Matt, I'm going to go back to the 1800s. All right. Uh, with a guy named James Carson. So uh, somewhere between 1817 and 1819, Carson conducted a series of experiments aimed at determining the properties of lungs uh, breathing, Carson contends, is a, quote, indeterminate combat between the resilience of the lungs and the irritability of the muscular fiber in the diaphragm. So here, uh, breathing was equated to the movement of pistons, metaphorically recalling the power of the steam, steam engine, and, and breathing is also constructed as a series of oppositional movements, the body acting and reacting in exchange of force. So the continual attacks on the exhaustless Carson concludes, though weaker, assailant roused the more gigantic but indeterminate repellent energies of its opponent. It is a war offensive and defensive. Thus, the contest continues for life with equal success, and its close remain drawn to battle. So, Wow, that, that's kind of interesting, man, because that made me think in, in early 1800s, a lot of times, um, you know, tuberculosis was rampant at the time uh, when people had uh, what they called congestion. 
back then or consumption I yep. believe it was um, they would send yeah. them off to the oceans uh, to get to get the airs to catch the airs yeah um, so it's interesting that you um, this guy in the early 1800s casting the lungs as uh, pistons versus um, some sort of diaphragm that's pulling it so it's these oppositional movements so it's like the industrial revolution yep but then it also harkens to the medical situations of the time exactly where people yeah. are trying to up their lung power by getting good air and get out of the city right so the point uh, you know aside from being a very obscure reference right that probably no one has gone back to read the point that i think i want to make <laughs> by drawing attention to it is that uh, as you kind of alluded to matt he's taking the things that are happening around him he's taking the sociological and anthropological phenomena of his time uh, to understand the anatomy of a human body and he's using those sorts of languages and metaphors and analogies so that his readers can understand what he's seeing. Because if you were to, to uh, describe how lungs work um, to a group or an audience who has no clue about biology, you wouldn't really be able to explain it to them unless you used metaphors. You, you have to equate it to something, right? Um, now, it's not... A metaphor is great because it's not saying the thing is exactly like another thing, but it's saying that it resembles it. You know, it yeah. acts kind of like it. It's like an alle allegorical, I guess, or, or analogous. Analogous, right? And it's yeah. interesting, even when I took biology in like high school and then one year of university, um, they still use the exact same types of metaphors. They're like, the lungs right. are like um, bellows of an organ. So we right, use yeah. these metaphors to explain complex concepts such as resilience in the classroom, right? Absolutely. And I think uh, we wouldn't be able to understand the concept of resilience without metaphors. Um, one of the metaphors that keeps coming back in our current time is the metaphor of the bouncing ball. So resilience gets related to the image of a ball being dropped at various heights and then rebounding back. And I think that metaphor kind of responds or gets us to the thinking that we as people or the things around us, such as our homes or infrastructure like bridges, um, if something were to happen and they were to be dropped, we can build in a certain amount of resilience, aka bouncing back. So okay. the idea of bouncing back gets equated to the word resilience. So as soon as you said like a ball bouncing the image, which that's the other thing that metaphors are great at, they create this imagery in your mind, right? Yep. Your mind's eye. Um, I had an image of, you know, when you see a bouncy ball in slow motion hitting the ground, just splattering out yep. and then rebounding up. Yep. Yep. When we think about society, let's say, as being resilient or we want to create a resilient population, we tend to forget about that splatter moment where some people are just sort of not going to be bouncing back with the rest of society. Right. Yep. You know? So um, I'm going to geek out a little bit. I love metrics. As you know, Matt, I love... <laughs> I know you'd love them. <laughs> ...stats, uh, you know, these sorts of things. So I used the database Scopus. Um, I'm sure you've heard of it. It's a database yep. that kind of does a cross-sectional search. You can do a keyword search. Um, so I checked uh, between 1990 and 2016. Um, so peer-reviewed research articles that use the word resilience, okay? What was One, that date range again? Sorry, man. 1990 to 2016. Okay, cool. Okay. 166,298 results through one uh, database. 
Scopus. And and what does Scopus like scour through? Is it like newspapers as well as academic journals and stuff? Just for people who don't know. No, just peer-reviewed academic papers. Holy cow, really? Yep. <laughs> Holy uh, wow. So not websites, uh, not magazines, uh, just the really kind of, you know, I hate to say it, but ivory tower crap that's out there. Yeah, for sure. That That's what <laughs> is so surprising. I'm like, wow, that yeah. really got in there. <laughs> because, uh, so like 25 of those, 25% of those were from the social sciences. Okay. So like 75% were from other fields, but 25% were from the social sciences. So then I said, well, what does Google Scholar have to say? And Google Scholar is a bit more expansive. So it will include some magazines. It will include some book reviews. It will include things that are less than peer reviewed. Okay. Uh, nice. So again, the same date range, 1990 to 2016, revealed 666,000 results. 51,200 were published between 2015 and 2016 alone. Holy cow. Holy okay. cow. That's a crazy number. Yeah. So I saw on these results that a lot of them were um, related to psychology. So I jumped over to the database PsychInfo. And PsychInfo does something similar to Scopus, but focuses only in the field of psychology. Okay. Right. Uh, between 1997 and 2017, so that 10 year um, kind of span, uh, almost 11,000 peer reviewed articles uh, were used with the word resilience in either its title or abstract. So now that's a 20 year span, right? A 20 year span, sorry. Yeah. yeah. Uh, about 11,000 peer reviewed articles use the word in their title or abstract. So that means wow. that the, that means that those papers were about the concept, not some fleeting use of the word. Um, those numbers, I know numbers can be deceiving or whatever, but I'll put this into context, context a little bit. A similar word like self-esteem uh, for the same time period, uh, roughly the same time period, wield uh, only about 7,500 articles. So, a word like self-esteem that we've seen, we've used, it's, you know, in common parlance, yields about a quarter of the results than resilience. So yeah, my takeaway... Too, like 97 to 2017 for psychology, like that's when the school shootings started. And it, like you would think there'd be a lot about like bullying and self-esteem and in-groups, out-groups and all that sort of right, stuff. Right, exactly. Time. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but no, so, they're just talking about making us resilient. Yeah. Interesting. So my takeaway is it is important in academia, all right? So now my next move is to ask how important is it broadly? How, how much is this term being used? So where do I go? Google. You Google it, right? If it's any indicator, there are over 47 million websites or links or hits that use the term resilience, 47 wow. million. If I do a similar search for the word sociology, 84 million hits come back. Oh, okay. So almost half of the amount of hits resilience gets than the word sociology. Uh, something like God is found on 1.4 billion websites, um, just for comparison. Lots more websites about God than resilience or sociology. Interesting. Interesting. I wouldn't suspect that. I think I would think more people are typing in resilience. So then that begs the question, are they typing in different words that are related to resilience Then they don't sort of... Not like they don't realize it, but it sounds a little trite, but you know, like risk, vulnerability, these sorts of things. So yeah, like I didn't they're do... not typing in resilience itself, right? Yeah. I haven't done the exercise for related words. And I, I think that's part of my to-do list 
is to really okay, cool. run like a list of uh, words that are related to it. Um, I, I, I'd, I'd, I'd be skeptical. Like I think a word like risk was really popular maybe f- 10, 15 years ago. Um, but currently I think resilience is much more popular. I think people use the word resilience when they really mean risk. I don't think they use the word risk when they're thinking of resilience. Oh, that's interesting. Holy crap. Okay. Well, that might be chapter two of your thesis right there, right? <laughs> uh, well, that would be a postdoc potentially because my yeah, chapters that's... are all written up. They're, they're, I'm not moving them. They are what they are. <laughs> what do you mean? Your chapters are done? Basically. Yeah. I'm like uh, maybe 80. Uh, no, that's too generous. I may be like uh, 60% done the whole thing. Holy now. crap, man. We're going to have to go play pool again and get smashed, buddy. <laughs> uh, when it's done. Yeah. When it's done. But this time we'll do it when it's done, not when you're just starting. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> all right. Beautiful. So how does this all tie in, man? So what are we, why are we going into all these stats and stuff? Right. So my takeaway from this and what I kind of want to argue, uh, it's, it's not a mute, it's not a mute point. Um, yeah. Mute. No, not mute. Yeah. A moot. Moot. Yeah. That's the word. It's not a moot point. Um, is that not only are these things really popular, uh, they're out there, but they creep into some of the more unexpected places of our lives. So for example, because of its widespread use, you have magazines like Time who are then uh, prone to use the word. So if something's popular, what's popular out there kind of needs to pick up on it, right? So they have a series of articles entitled How to Be Resilient, Eight Steps to Success When Life Gets Hard. So they've <laughs> when it, life you know, gets hard? When life gets hard, you got to be resilient. Wow, that is right? like the epitome of privilege right there. <laughs> so ah, Life's getting hard. So, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm okay with people wanting to better themselves. No problem with that. Uh, folks looking for solutions when life gets hard, when shit hits the fan, you know? Uh, but it's when recommendations like this uh, kind of crop up. So Time's recommendation, their third recommendation, was, quote, to be a quitter. Yeah. So um, the, the article touted okay. the advice that, quote, you quit baseball when you're 10 and quit playing the piano after just two lessons. Nobody sticks with everything. You can't. Wow. So like they're yeah. advocating quitting. Exactly. Which would yeah. strike like my definition of like sticking your head down and hopefully things bounce off of you. It's probably why I got so many concussions in the first place. But <laughs> um, that's beside the point. But that certainly wouldn't apply to what they think it resilient is. Resilience is, according to Time magazine, which is the authority on all things, um, well, yeah. is the ability to uh, give up when something gets hard. Yeah. So they, uh, they huh. kind of qualified a bit more in their next uh, suggestion on what to okay. do when, when life gets hard. So uh, their fourth in this series was uh, when the company, this is a quote, when the company starts laying people off, there's always one guy smart enough to immediately jump ship and preemptively get a new job. Okay. I mean, that's, let's, let, let, let's, 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 let's everyone facepalm here for a second. Yeah, no kidding. That's a little risky. Like, it, first off, if you're lucky enough to have a job in the first place, um, but secondly, uh, yeah, that's incredibly risky. What about if you have dependents? Yeah. Like you're kind of testing their resiliency, I guess. Right. Yeah. Well, you, you speak about risk, Matt, this article again, makes another suggestion. Here's a quote. Some people are smart enough to realize I am never going to be a great tango dancer and should double my efforts at playing poker. <laughs> yeah. It's right, right, <laughs> you, right in the I, article, Matt. I feel like if you learn even like 
the basics of tango, you're going to get more lucky than if you try to pick up poker, man. So, okay. Why? Okay. So <laughs> I, I, I talk about all these stats. I talk about where it's coming up and then yeah. I talk about this time article. What am I getting at? Right. Yeah. What I'm getting at is, uh, I'm going to call it like point a, so the first point. And the first point is a bet. And the bet is actually that resilience can increase happiness, reduce stress, and better overall health. And that's one of the bets. That this concept, the ideas behind it, the kind of work that we put in, can make us better people. Make us happier, healthier, you know, all that good stuff. Okay. Okay. That's, 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 your, that's the first kind of thing that it's doing. This, and positive, this, is, your, this well, is your thing? No, it's not. It's my reading of it, but I don't okay. think I'm alone. Like the whole field of positive psychology is premised on more or less on some principle of resilience. Okay. Okay. Yeah. No, fair. I just want to make sure I understand correctly. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, we see things coming up like uh, how to develop a psychology of resilience, for example, uh, which advocates for uh, when you get stressed, uh, you know, turn to a mindless activity like coloring or watching TV. Um, so really just to avoid the stressful situations, um, you know, so, you know, why not? Um, yeah, no, that makes sense. Yeah. Like if you, especially if you've experienced tra uh, trauma, you want to try to reduce the amount of stress in your life. Yeah, yeah absolutely. And uh, so the positive psychology version of it uh, coming from like the happiness kind of industry is uh, to say, well, silent relationships to the self uh, are better than those vocal relationships to each other. So just do something in silence. Um, and you know, the goal of thinking like this, of thinking, uh, you know, we call it resilience thinking is, uh, to become more flexible and be able to deal with adversity, move on and learn from it and grow. Um, so the, those are, that's the, that's the bet. The bet is if you're able, uh, to be more in tune with yourself, block out those negative things that are happening externally, uh, that you'll become just a better person overall. Okay. Yeah. Right. No, fair enough. It's not unreasonable, man. Yeah. Yeah. It really isn't until you start looking at it from a critical perspective. Yeah, exactly. So <laughs> Which I'm already doing. <laughs> all right. So let's tear that apart uh, a little bit. It won't take us long. Um, first situation, Matt, what happens when, uh, you know, the factory is laying off all these workers uh, because uh, they're moving the factory to a country that has less labor standards, is cheaper, uh, and will ultimately earn them more profit? Uh, should you just go and color? Should you just simply not use your external voice and use your internal voice because that's a stressful situation, losing your job, and you wouldn't want it to harm you too much, right? Yeah, and then but then the other advice in that time article is uh, you should jump ship early. Um, so don't color yet. Go get a new job, and then you'll be coloring. You have all the time in the world to color right? while yeah. you're. Friends and colleagues are getting yeah. canned getting and losing fun, their houses. Yeah. So, yeah, really what you should be doing is monitoring the situation, getting out of industries or jobs that uh, don't provide for you, sticking sticking, sticking to yourself, you know? Watch your own back. Uh, that, from a critical yeah. perspective, seems very sad that yeah. we would yeah. be promoting something that basically says, don't help others. Yeah, yeah. Like, even when I'm... What I said right there, like you're over in your other job watching your friends yeah, yeah. and colleagues get canned. Like yeah. that's where I'm thinking of. Like, yeah, it's it does strike me as sad. And I know you're getting at this idea of we, and it's a correct. I think um, and it's a perfect example. Of this this article here, and the you know resilience training industry, I guess, or happiness industry, 
is this idea that, um, you know, that we need to be focused on ourselves. We need to be single-minded and driven um, for our own personal needs. And this gets at this idea of living in neoliberal times, neoconservative times, where we don't care about our colleagues anymore. We only care about our own personal gains, essentially. Absolutely. And if you are like the epitome of that, then I guess in this case, you are seen as super duper resilient, right? Yeah. And then uh, being super duper resilient, the way that we can tell that someone is, is because they've basically avoided situations uh, that negatively impact them. So, you know, it's that, that person who always seems to find themselves in the right place at the right time. And we say, wow, that person's so resilient. Look, uh, but then that person never has helped anybody out, you know, has never cared about uh, a community of peers, really. Yeah, and they probably stepped on a few uh, backs getting up, climbing that ladder as well, because that's usually what the, how that goes. Um, yep. So when I was thinking about teaching people how to be resilient, um, as you know, you and I, people who are in chronic pain, what if you're unable to do these uh, resilience uh, training exercises? Like I know going within my own mind, doing a coloring, like for one, that sets my symptoms a little bit ablaze because there's a lot of cognitive output. Um, it's not pleasant uh, being within my own mind. It's painful. So like a lot of these um, techniques, these wellness practices that are part of resilience training actually can do more harm than good. Uh, try to tell a doctor that, try to tell a psychologist that, they'll just think you're being <laughs> resilient and resistant. <laughs> right, but, yeah. Uh, you know, yeah. Like for, and then another thing like yoga, for example, that for whatever reason always messes me up. I can do Pilates, but I can't do yoga. Right. So like some of these resilience training, avoidance, going within yourself, meditating, those don't work for me very well. So Yeah, they don't work for everyone. And you know, the thing about coloring, some folks uh, love to do it. It's a huge trend, adult coloring. There's a reason why it's a huge trend. Uh, and I don't know which came first. I don't, it's one of these chicken and egg sort of arguments, right? So are the uh, kind of proponents of resilience picking up on this trend and saying, oh, well, you know what, like uh, this can be considered part of your resilience training or part of a resilience, uh, you know, how to become a happy person? Or is it that the trend has picked up because people are looking for outlets uh, to satisfy this lack of control that they have? So if everything around you is changing at a rapid pace, you find yourself uh, you know, close to what Durkheim, the French uh, sociologist Durkheim would call anomie, a situation where you don't recognize who you are in relation to the things going on around you. Maybe you do want to turn to an activity like coloring. And, you know, I ha- I ha- fundamentally, I have no problem with that. I have no problem with someone at the end of the day wanting to relax a little. My problem is when it's a continued activity and eventually you forget that there are other people around. That's where the problem happens. So taken to its logical conclusion, that form of individualized resilience training doesn't help you when you've stumbled. Yeah, it's interesting, man. I just wrote a whole bunch of notes there. I like that you focused in on this uh, idea of change, right? And when things are changing really rapidly, people, um, they get a little bit worried. And now I think resilience, the concept, um, emerged maybe um, out of 2008 with the uh, with the collapse of the real estate market. Um, since then, I think that's when the concept started gaining ground. So I don't think the coloring books um, 
I don't think you think either that the coloring books caused the concept to emerge, but it's more of a result of of uh, these feelings at society wide that people are freaked out, as you said, Durkheim's anime. So there's in 2008 you had the real estate market collapse. You got the 99 percent uh, movement. You got I don't know more um, emerging a few years later. Black Lives Matter a few years later. Technology is still rapidly evolving and changing. Now we have those freaky little speakers in our houses that um, being told that everybody needs to get. Um, you also have, I think, the rise of social media is a big thing here. So you can avoid conflicts with people out on the internet by siloing yourself in your own little echo chamber, I guess, to get all the way back to bacon. And right. then that causes polemics, right? So people feel safe in their little bubble, but they don't really know how to have a healthy debate with the other side anymore. Yep. So we just don't have them anymore. We just avoid political debates online, you know? Well, Matt, I think uh, before I get into my second point, and you touched on it, where has the modern use of resilience come from? I want to play a track that I believe is appropriately titled from Bonjay. You can check Bonjay out on their Facebook, at Bonjay Music. They are on Twitter, at Bonjay Music. Uh, check out their Bandcamp. Uh, and if you enjoy what you're hearing, support them. Buy uh, an album or two or three. Uh, and this is their track titled Stumble. Oh. 
Welcome back, everyone. Semi-intellectual musings. We are talking resilience. We're talking stories of resilience. And we ended, uh, you know, talking about the 2008 financial crisis. Uh, Matt, I don't think that the term came from coloring books. Uh, and my research has shown that the term actually doesn't come from the 2008 financial crash either. Okay. Uh, do you want to take a guess of where it does come from, though? Related is somewhat to uh, to the financial crash of 2008. 9-11? No, you got to go back further than that, buddy. Uh, Ronald Reagan, for some reason, because everyone blames Reagan for everything. No, Nixon. Was it Nixon? Close. Close. Really? You're, you're, you're getting closer. Uh, JFK, um, after he was assassinated um, by the CIA, uh, maybe Johnson told everybody to come together and be resilient as a nation. What uh, what year was JFK assassinated? I know I should know this. Sixty-five. Sixty-five. Yeah. All right. Really? Uh, oh. Close to it. Uh, however, we're gonna go to Canada. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, with a guy. Uh, his name is uh, Buzz. So we go by Buzz, but it's CS CS Buzz Holling. Um, I don't know if you've heard of any of this guy's work. Uh, so no, but Holling, I think I might start calling you Buzz, buddy. Yeah, why, why not? Eh? Uh, so Holling, uh, Holling worked uh, in the 70s and 80s uh, from a social ecological perspective. Oh, okay. Yeah. And what he was trying to do was look at ecological systems um, and their interaction with social systems. And he came to the concept of resilience as the kind of signpost, the perfect word to describe what he was seeing in social ecological uh, interactions. Okay, so it's is it us interacting with them or is it the like the woods, the forest, let's say interacting with us and then also interacting within their own world as well. It's one of these things in in Holling's work. Um, so when you read it there's the concept of panarchy that kind of comes up. So let me okay. let me explain. All natural systems, all ecological systems, including humans, go through a certain patterned set of behaviors. Birth, growth, maturity, reproduction, death, these sorts of things, yeah. right? Yeah. Um, and you see the same sort of pattern play out in forests. You see the same sort of pattern play out in grass fields. Oh, yeah. You see sure. the same sort of pattern happen in coral reefs or under the sea. Fundamentally, there is some sort of common denominator pattern that's happening. But what happens okay. when there's a forest fire or what happens when there's some sort of trauma to the coral reef system? What happens when something that used to be there is removed? That's what Holling was looking at. And what he found was that the system rearranges itself to compensate, to cope, to adapt, to move forward, and then remembers that there is certain trauma to it that caused it hardship and changes the pattern of behaviors ever so slightly to be able to adapt. So in forests, for example, that were never exposed to drought conditions, when a first drought happens, it is traumatized. Something like, you know, 80 or 90% of uh, the habitat will be lost, dead. When the forest regenerates, it will adapt to the possibility of there being another drought, ever so slightly. And that repeated exposure to those uh, droughts renders the forest over many years drought tolerable so that eventually forest has very little loss in a year when there's a drought now that is let's take a second to think of that about that right trees animals everything adapt to things that happen to them 
So he takes that concept and says, well, can't humans do the same thing? Hmm. So it's interesting. I wrote a couple of notes down there because there's a lot of meaty concepts in there and thoughts. Um, so it's very intriguing that he argued probably pretty early on that ecosystems have memories, right? Um, yes. And that they're able to avoid future trauma, like the memory of a trauma that's had in the past. They can avoid future traumas uh, through change. So adaption in this sense, in the term of resilience, is actually avoidance and change. You see mm-hmm. those two concepts yeah. coming up again. Yep. And I think it's interesting, too, that we can you know, maybe get your thoughts here. Does it matter, Phil, like if that trauma is like, quote unquote, natural versus, quote unquote, like man-made or unnatural? So I'm thinking, say, a coral reef that um, uh, is damaged through like a spill from an oil tanker versus a forest fire that happens in uh, the Okanagan in Canada where they always have forest fires every year. Yep. Does that matter? You know? No, and this is the crux of what Holling was working on. So what Holling yeah. actually argues is that we can have engineered um, sort of pressures on ecosystems. And, um, you know, really th- that that sort of work gets taken up in policy and, it, you know, has to do a lot with simulations and models of the impacts of certain trends on ecosystems. But basically it comes down to adaptive management. And the idea is that, as a society, we can control how a forest works or lives or contributes to us, right? So if you want lots of trees to grow really fast, there's a certain thing that we can do to them to be able to do that. Um, and we can inter- like we can interfere with its natural cycle and make it better. So we can train it to grow faster in a certain way. Okay, so the classic uh, critique from the social sciences would be is that that is us thinking that man, you know, with capital, like humankind, um, has ownership or lordship over the natural world and that we can let it make it bend to our will. Um, so that's perhaps what Holland is uh, arguing here. But I think it's very interesting that you see that idea within the concept of adaptive management, the mm-hmm. idea yeah. that we can control nature and then if we look at all around the world, the results of us trying to control nature, it seems like nature makes its own adaptions and corrects its own course, you know, and you see tsunamis and, and, and flooding. And well, exactly. Yeah. Horrible and, and, and like, you know, the, a key feature to the idea of adaptive management is that it's iterative, right? So it's back and forth. So you need more data and you need more things to happen to be able to make better models and predictions about how things will happen in the future. And you kind of have to weigh that against the short-term gains. So like, yeah. We, and it's we, like, sorry, it's, it's like, um, you're doing a, like a, almost a longitudinal ongoing study, but, um, you, it's more like a scientific experiment where you do, um, try like you do an experiment, it fails, then you rework your hypothesis and try a new experiment, it fails and your hypothesis just gets stronger and stronger through failure, right? The only problem is the stakes are pretty damn high when you're looking at, uh, you know, 40 foots of flame coming down on your house. Well, exactly, <laughs> exactly, yeah. And like, you know, um, what Holling talks about is a the difference between a passive and an active adaptive management style or practice. So, um, you know, in the case of a drought with a forest, for example, uh, you might just sit back and let it do its thing and not interfere. And that would be kind of like a more passive way of doing it. Or you might actively right. uh, try to do something about it. So you might, uh, you know, bring water to some of the trees, maybe half of them, see what happens. 
these sorts of things, right? Um, but where I want to go with this is that if you take this work, the ability to intervene and uh, shape the environment around us um, and combine it with resilience, you start to see a different story emerge. And then that story is that we can condition, uh, we can test, and we can kind of intervene in the adaptive capacities of people. So if you leave the forest and come to the city, is there a way that you could shape ever so slightly and push and prod a city to move and live in a certain style or way? Okay, so I think what I'm going to have a problem with, like, but we'll keep going, <laughs> uh, like the shaping the adaptive capacities of people, like singular, that's where I start to get worried. But changing the adaptive capacities of a city... That just makes sense to me. Like, so, so I don't know. So we'll see. <laughs> so I might have more to say, but we'll just, just keep going with your thoughts here. Absolutely. Yeah. And I, I'm going to have to agree. So let's take uh, the example of public transit. Uh, if you were an overseer, a city planner, you want to kind of test the adaptive capacity of your transit system. So you want to see what happens if a bus crashes on this route. Uh, how many people will be affected? What happens if this highway is closed? Can there still be a, a you know a reroute uh, to get people to work or to school or wherever, right? So these sorts of stress test models are useful when you're testing public transit. They're not so useful if you're testing for things like what happens if we gentrify a certain area and you don't think about the homeless population there, or what happens if we gentrify an area where there's lots of young uh, people who perform graffiti or street art. Uh, and now they're getting arrested and overbearing on the criminal justice system. So there's a whole slew of unintended consequences that happens when you meddle with the city. And I, you know, this isn't anything new. This is the same kind of story that we've heard from sociologists uh, since at least like, you know, the 1930s and 40s. And we also know um, from past examples, like, so if it is an iterative process, we should be able to learn from other cities that have, like, say, gentrified in, a, in an insensitive way, what that does to the social dynamics, the cultural dynamics of a city. But also, again, with these, like, forest fires in California, you have the fire and then you have the mudslides. Um, and I heard this account from this guy who, like, escaped as a heroin account on uh, a podcast called The Crab Feast. I actually really recommend people hearing it. Um, but uh, he was saying that, um, like, he was speaking to a Guatemalan housekeeper who's like oh yeah no we have mudslides all the time because um all of our forests have been stripped away so whenever we right. get rains we just get mudslides so she could have told this guy um and everybody else if they just listened to this guatemalan housekeeper right right, right. so it's funny we can have all these policies and escape routes and and contingency plans um but then there's like just this knowledge out there that it could be tapped into if we just were a little bit more open-minded i think Right. Yeah. And I think, um, you know, part of uh, that training, so part of reaching out, learning about these uh, certain situations and how to deal with them uh, is kind of the, the the third part that I want to talk about. And that's the creation of a new subject. Um, so if you combine kind of the first two parts uh, of what I was talking about, you end up in a situation where there is a desire to create a new person a new sensibility, a new identity, and that is the resilient person. And you mean, so by subject, you mean like a subjectivity, right? Yeah, how you think of yourself. 
how you identify yourself or when you wake up in the morning, uh, kind of the, the skin that you put on, um, that layer that meets the world. And I think it's interesting when we mentioned earlier how oftentimes this idea of resiliency is a self-centered one where it's like, I need to be resilient, you know. Um, but when we think about subjectivity, often we think, who am I, is in relation to other people. So um, it's comparative in this sense when you use the concept of resiliency, I think. Exactly. Like, I am stronger or more capable or resilient than this other person. You know? And I'm going to argue that that comparison between objects, a forest that had water versus a forest that didn't, is the same that gets translated to the new resilient person, person who is or isn't resilient. And you can only define yourself as being resilient in opposition to some, some, something or someone who, quote unquote, isn't. Yeah, for sure. So let's backtrack a little bit. You're meant to be happy. You're meant to kind of chase uh, individual happiness. And we can give you a variety of techniques to do it under the banner of resilience. We know that we can adapt and change and we can be pushed and prodded in certain ways to do so. And now the result of that is that we have resilient people. We have people who wake up in the morning saying, I am resilient and act accordingly. I don't know. To me, that is something serious and we have to take stock of it. <laughs> you know? Yeah, exactly. Because first. we're acting accordingly to whose standards would be my first question. Yeah. And that's kind of where my research is going, uh, my PhD research. So who is defining it? How is it being defined? Uh, what sort of work is going into it? And um, right now I'm working on something that looks at the Rockefeller Foundation. Uh, it looks at the creation of what they call chief resilient officers. Uh, these are people who are hired by the municipality to oversee programs and policies that fall under the rubric of resilience. Um, and just... Um, you know, some, throw some some more numbers at you. Um, the initiative, it, it falls under what they call the 100 Resilient Cities uh, manner. That's what it's called. And it has a $164 million commitment by the foundation and $230 million pledged in support from its partners. Uh, it gives a million dollars to 100 uh, cities uh, globally. And in 2014, um, sorry, in 2016, they reached um, 100 other members, which included cities like Atlantic, Belfast, Boston, Boulder, Buenos Aires, Calgary, London, Jakarta, Montreal, New York, Singapore, Toronto, and Vancouver. You're very on Vancouver, Matt. Yay. Was this before or after the riots? So. Uh, when were the riots? Uh, 2009. After. Ah, nice. After the riots. Bouncing back, Vancouver. Way to go. <laughs> Bouncing back. There we go. <laughs> Um, so yeah, so one of the books, uh, that details or one of the players. So my research kind of tracks the players and, um, the networks that are formed. Uh, one of the players is, uh, Judith Roden. Uh, she works for the Rockefeller foundation. She's like their CEO of this project. Uh, she's really championed, uh, the title of resilience. And she wrote a book, um, the resilience dividend being strong in a world where things go wrong. Um, and she quotes president Bill Clinton on the cover. Um, saying something oh. about something. Um, so anyway, um, if anybody's interested in picking up on these discussions, you can find uh, most of what we just talked about actually is in the Resilient Dividend. Well, 
Cool. It's yeah. very interesting, Phil. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I don't know everything about the concept, but uh, I do know that it's creating uh, new people. And I don't want to call them super people, like not X-Men kind of stuff. Uh, but, uh, <laughs> uh, but it's a new way to see ourselves. It's a new way to picture who we are. Uh, you know, if we go back to our great grandparents, they didn't have this, uh, this idea of, you know, I need to be resilient. No, they just, they had the idea of, uh, putting your nose down, getting your hands dirty and picking it, picking yourself up by the bootstraps, uh, with the concept of resilience it's a bit different. There's a foresight of catastrophe. We are vulnerable, Right. Uh, something will happen to us, uh, and uh, we just have to be ready when it does. Yeah, it's it's interesting, man. I had a couple of just sort of uh, parting thoughts um, related to that concept of vulnerability. Um, I think when we are advocated to or compelled to be resilient, or at the very least act like we are resilient, um, it comes at the sacrifice of a healthy relationship to vulnerability. Like, I think it's... Um, not a good thing to avoid um, being vulnerable at times because nobody can be resilient one hundred percent of the time. Nobody is like like some iron sold super <laughs> ubermensch, I guess. Um, and also um, something that perhaps we'll pick up more in the chronic pain series that we're going to start. Um, just a reminder there: if you're interested, email us semiintellectual at gmail dot com. Um, ideas like normative ideas and ideals in healthcare. So this idea that um, doctors have an understanding of what a quote-unquote healthy person is, and unless you fit that mold perfectly, they think that you're at risk or vulnerable or breaking down, and they need to either increase your resilience and teach you management strategies so you just deal with the pain, or they you know, try to treat all your symptoms until you become at least quote-unquote normal. So... I think that's a very interesting concept to pick up on. Yeah. And, you know, I wonder where this idea, you know, I, I, I tend to ask this question a lot, Matt, and, and I'd like your, your, like your take on it. Right. But yeah. um, we tend not to use the word coping as we used to. Um, you know, my grandfather had back and knee problems. Uh, he coped with the pain. Um, you know, I find myself using the word quite often, like I cope with my pain, um, but I don't, I don't know if it still holds the same sort of value, but there used to be, if you're able to cope with your pain, you're able to show that you were strong, right? You were someone who could face the pain and win, right? Like, what are your thoughts on that, on that uh, coping, the idea of coping? Yeah, it's interesting. Um, I've, I used to use the term coping um, strategies or coping mechanisms. Um, I think you're right in the um, point you made there that, being someone who can cope means that you, in your soul, are like strong and worthy. You know, you're you're gritting your teeth and burying it. Now, when I use the term like pain management strategies or management strategies, it's um, for one, it's um, intellectualized. It's a um, some knowledge some healthcare professional has bestowed upon me. So there's a power dynamic there, um, and then also they don't, for one, they don't work 100 percent. Um, because they're management strategies, like those are both relative terms. Um, so when I'm particularly bad, like I have been recently, um, I kind of say like, oh, my management strategies aren't working, but then people are like, well, why don't you try something new? So, and that kind of gets to that post that I threw up on Facebook where it's like, 
these are the 15 things not to say to somebody with a chronic illness. Um, don't really necessarily agree with the tone of that post that uh, the person put, but I do agree with the sentiment there. Um, like, not only are we expected to deal with our pain ourselves with management strategies, but then others in our relationships, and that was another thing I wanted to mention, um, they also have expectations on how you should comport yourself as well. Right, but the idea of just coping with it, like what you're what you're basically telling me is that you are supposed to take ownership of your condition and you're supposed to actively work and do things towards it, right? But yeah, I think the and idea coping of coping is more like coping is more like putting up with it, right? Yeah, or like yeah. gritting your teeth. Exactly. Yeah. 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 Like my grandfather didn't do anything for his back pain. He yeah. would sit there in agony and complain about it once in a while, but he didn't do anything. Um and I feel like that was okay. Uh, there was no expectation from my grandmother that he do anything, but I don't think that that flies today. I think if you see someone who is in pain, um, you, you like you're wanting them to say that they're managing it somehow, right? By a wellness practice, by medications, or whatever they decide, right? And, and uh, someone who doesn't do anything in a situation, we kind of look at them like, well, what the f- what's your problem? Yeah, and so then to project. Uh, out as like chronic pain sufferers, we um, communicate quite literally to those in our in our lives uh, that we are doing things, that we are actively trying to manage our symptoms. Uh, because, like at least I know, speaking from my own experience, that's something that I constantly have to remind my loved ones that I'm I'm constantly trying to deal with this. But um, you know, those who know me like you know, out here, they see me in person. Um, they, they, people realize that there's only so much you can do over time, but they still, still expect you to do more. Sure. But let's expand a little bit beyond. So just, just, we'll finish up shortly, but let's expand a little bit beyond like chronic illness or chronic pain, right? For sure. Uh, if you don't have a fire extinguisher in your kitchen, you're a moron. If you don't have insurance on your house, you're a moron. If you haven't prepared for a flood and you're in an area that floods, you're stupid. Um, so, you know, that you're was, expected. That one was interesting right there, the flood, man, considering the floods that we got last year, because you did see that narrative in the media. Absolutely. And especially online as well. Absolutely. So if like, you don't take charge of uh, your possessions, uh, things like your house, your car, uh, or prepare your loved ones and yourself for a catastrophe, you're an idiot. You deserved it. You should have gotten what you got, right? That mm-hmm. narrative is relatively new. We don't see that um, narrative in even recent history. So if something, a catastrophe, natural disaster happened, uh, people would cope with the fallout. They would grind their teeth through. You would see people coming together in a community and helping each other. Um, But no one really blamed them for not being ready. So like, I don't have sandbags on my house, but if I lived in an area that, you know, is prone to flooding and I didn't have sandbags. My neighbors wouldn't come help me fill sandbags. I should I should have had them. Why didn't I have them? I didn't take charge. I wasn't responsible. So part of the part of my argument with the resilience training stuff is that it's a heightened responsabilization that's placed on the individual, and that individual is expected to know have full knowledge of the things that are good and bad for them. And that's something that's just it's ridiculous. There's no way that we can fully know what's good or bad for us. And the public seems to. Um, find catharsis in blaming other people for their sad plight rather than 
being so troubled as to feel emotions like, oh man, that would suck having your house flooded. And, you know, in in Ottawa, we did have quite a number of people who were not affected by the floods who went down there and helped fill sandbags. Mm -hmm. But you're right in the sense that, like, if you didn't have any sandbags or if you didn't have the forethought to get some sand down by your house or whatever the hell, um, people would be blaming you. Um, And I know friends back home, like, back home, if you live right next to a river, you're you're probably well off or something like that. Like that's like desirable real estate or something. Right, yeah. So they didn't understand my friends back there. Didn't understand that those people who live down by those river are not uh, terribly well off necessarily. There's probably some nice right. houses there, but it's by and large like working class uh, families, right? So you're like, I mean, how much does sand cost in the middle of a flood? Probably a lot of money. Right? So <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, and yeah. I, you know, I in a future episode, I'd like to kind of unpack. Um, why people go to help in disasters. I have my yeah. little pet theories as to why they go, but... Uh, Me too. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, we'll save that cynicism for another one, Matt. Um, yeah, sure. <laughs> do you have a, a last word on uh, the story of resilience? I I think, um, as you said, there's definitely a lot more to unpack there, man. Um, it, w- depending on what um, academic field this concept comes up in and what their perspective is on breaking it down and being critical um is going to change how the concept is envisioned so i know that this is going to come up and those related concepts of being you know at risk vulnerable um whatever and resilient uh they're going to come up in that chronic pain series that we're going to start so um for now we'll shelve it on resilience and i'm looking forward to our next conversation on it but what about yourself do you have any last thoughts there uh you know i could talk uh well i have talked for like eight hours on this so i'm not going to do it uh today uh luckily <laughs> for everyone uh what i will say what i will say is uh, if you want to follow us on twitter we are at the underscore sim underscore pod if you want to follow us on facebook we are at the Simpod. you can find us uh your podcatcher of choice uh and uh send us an email semi-intellectual gmail.com let us know what you thought uh we didn't cover everything and uh purposely left some gaps in there so you know, if you notice something and you're like, I don't think Phil got it right. I think uh, he's a moron. Call me out on it. Send me an email. I love those emails that just say, Phil, you missed the point. Because then I get to respond saying, why don't you come on the show? Yeah, I like forwarding those emails to Phil's uh, personal account as well. Why not? Uh, just a little double dose of Double dose. <laughs> <laughs> We're going to leave you this week with another track from Banjay. This one is titled Creepin'. Check Bonjay out. Seriously, go check them out on Bandcamp. Bonjay.bandcamp.com. They're on Facebook, Bonjay Music. They're on Twitter. They have a YouTube channel. They're also on Instagram. Instagram.com forward slash Bonjay Music. B-O-N-J-A-Y. It makes me think of the Blue Jays, Matt. Yeah, the great Blue Jays. Baseball is a starting. That's what the only yeah. that's uh yeah. So yeah, pitchers and catchers are reporting next weekend, brother. Off we go. <laughs> All right, here's Bonjay and Creepin. When we come back, we have some uh, thank yous to give y'all. Talk to you next week. If you see the
welcome back, everyone. Thank you for listening to our most recent episode. Uh, we want to give some thank yous. So we have the the old computers in front of us. We're looking at the reviews that have come in. And, uh, you know, our game is if you send us a review, we plug you, we read it on there. So uh, without further ado, Matt, why don't you kick us off? This one is from the Fine Fine website and folks over at Podknife. Uh, check them out. Podknife.com. They're on Twitter as well. Uh, but we got a review through Podknife. Yay. Yay. So this review is called fun smart show with great hosts it's from mtl which stands for montreal sports fan uh if you want to learn something and have a great time doing it this is the show for you never ceases to amaze me how they come up with such original topics even though it says came up with anyway thanks uh, montreal sports fan yeah thanks and uh i have uh an inkling that mtl sports fan uh is the skip and josh show they didn't they didn't they didn't tell us that but uh i've just have a feeling yeah, well, that's why I made fun of the spelling there. So there you go. Uh, in, inside <laughs> jokes. See, I'm not on the inside, uh, so I don't know. Uh, uh, this one comes from iTunes USA uh, podcast Beyond Data. Love the long form format and the wide ranging musings. Great listen. Thank you so much. And uh, we really enjoy your podcast Beyond Data as well. So uh, yeah. thanks for leaving us a review. Yeah, big fan of yours, Rhett. Um, so the next one we also have from iTunes, it's from Topher Kemp, uh, from the good old USA, uh, great sound and an awesome show. And the title was lots of fun. So that's, uh, thanks Topher. <laughs> I love it. I love it. And, uh, Matt, if you could uh, imagine an entire podcast, uh, based around one holiday, no, it's not, uh, Valentine's day. It's Halloween. The Halloween <laughs> podcast left us a review. Thank you so much. Uh, a really fun show to listen to. I will keep listening. That's by Implore. Thank, thank you for that. Really appreciate that. Um, here's another one. A great show, guys, by Exanode. Exano. <laughs> Help me out with this one, Matt. Exanode. Exanode. Yeah, I thought I figured you set this up so that I'd have to read this name. Well, uh, I didn't. Well, Zano I needed your help did. with Exano. Zano did it. Exano. <laughs> Okay, whatever. Just read the review. <laughs> I just got to say, it's not every day that you run into two well-educated intellectuals like Matt and Phil. Okay, take it easy there. Yeah, whoa. Who also have a great sense of humor. Take it easy there. <laughs> two of oh, the I coolest do. Canadians I have ever had the pleasure of meeting. Holy cow, slow down. Keep up the good work. And for anyone who is reading this, do yourself a favor. Subscribe to the Semi-Intellectual Musings podcast. That's actually a really solid review. That is a great review. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, thanks. And uh, I'm going to echo that, and I'm going to say, yeah, hit subscribe. Subscribe to Semi-Intellectual, hey, this podcast. You know, subscribe to our podcast. (laughs) Perfect. You got any more there, Phil? Uh, Well, this one is uh, from a name, uh, no good. Uh, But, however, uh, you know, they do show us that we're, I guess, good because they say too much fun. Uh, this show is refreshingly intelligent and hilariously funny. They dig deep into subject du jour, that's French, Matt, and deliver oh, yeah. an hour of genuine podcast goodness. If you are not listening to this show, you should be. Sim, friend or foe, friend. No good, we are your friend as well. Uh, thank you for that. Really appreciate it. All right, we got a couple more. No, that's here, uh, that's pretty nice Where, one. Even go? though we've kicked our friend or foe off to the curb, as we've established here. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> so I got it. Got another one here from uh, Story Spectacular, semi-intellectual. 
fully amusing. <laughs> like that. Uh, yeah, it's like having cool. a chat with your smart and funny friends. I love the variety of discussions. Just listen to the smallpox episode, and I can't wait to hear more from the archives. That's pretty cool, actually. That's one of our original uh, podcasts. Yeah. It was like episode like three or four or something. It was, yeah. Um, <laughs> so thank you for that. And we do kind of pride ourselves on having an archives to the show. Um, you know, one of the things when we were setting up the show, I remember talking with you about it, Matt, was uh, having like a bookshelf approach, having a, just a variety of uh, different episodes that people could go back and listen to. There was no particular order that they had to necessarily listen to them in. Um, so, you know, I appreciate this review that picks up on that. Good on you. That's awesome. Good on yeah, you. Yeah, totally. And uh, re-listening ability. Yeah. So thanks, uh, Story Spectacular. Uh, I got two really quick ones here uh, from Gingeran One from the US of A. She says, or he says, it's great. It's their new favorite podcast, Matt. Yay, listener number Yay. four. And uh, another one from Dr. Toboggan Mantis. Uh, <laughs> it's uh, it's actually Brent from Hysteria 51. He says, excellent show, keep it up. So thank you. <laughs> thank you so much. And Hysteria 51, great podcast. Thank you, Brent. Yeah, um, one of my favorites. Whew, those were a lot. That's a lot of reviews. Look at that. Uh, if you want to leave us a review, you could do so on our Twitter at the underscore S-I-M underscore P-O-D. You could do so on our Facebook page. We like Facebook reviews. We're at the SimPod. Uh, you could send us an email, semi-intellectual.gmail.com. You could go to Podknife. Leave us a review on there, podknife.com. You could do one on that iTunes thing, you know, that thing called iTunes. You know what I'm talking mm-hmm. about, Matt. Yeah, maybe Apple's podcast or whatever the hell they're calling it like, whatever they're Whatever the kids are using. Just jump on there, give us the review. And uh, if you if you have the choice for any stars, just five star it. We like the five stars. We like generals. Why not? <laughs> Beautiful, man. And um, also, just once again, if there is any podcasters out there who want to talk about uh, chronic pain, illness, disability, mental health uh, for our new ongoing upcoming series on uh, chronicity, I encourage you to email us at semi-intellectual at gmail.com we'll forward you a scheduling link so that we can book you in for an interview. All right. This has been a very long episode for us. Uh, <laughs> thank you for listening. Tune in next week. We're going to leave you with another track from Bonjay. This one is called Shada. Check out Bonjay. We're, they're everywhere. Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, YouTube, Songkick. Uh, buy their music on iTunes. Go to Bandcamp. You can listen to it on SoundCloud. Everywhere. Or just that Bonjay. Heck, even our show notes, right? Even <laughs> yeah, just you know, I'm gonna link to all this stuff, but just check them out. Bonjay. B-O-N-J-A-Y. Like the J's from Toronto. They are bon, which is French Matt for good. This track is good. It's called Shada by Bonjay. Talk to y'all next week.
hammering through this. All right, top of the page. <laughs> because, oh uh, yeah, uh, we should have dropped. We should have talked about basketball for a second, but whatever. All right. Um, a couple of white guys from Canada. Yeah, we'll talk about basketball for a little bit. Bill Grizzlies. Hey. <laughs> 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 <Fuck it. laughs> no, I know. <laughs> All right. 